Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Glad to have the McBroom family back with us after vacating and journeying afar and visiting family and just getting time away. Amen. Glad that they are back home. Amen. Their children are back home with us this evening. And God has kept them safe in their travels. Acts 17 and verse number 10, the Bible says, And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. Therefore, many of them believed also of honorable women, which were Greeks and of men, not a few. But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached to Paul at Berea, they came thither also, stirred up the people. And then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go, as it were, to the sea. But Silas and Timotheus abode there still. And they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens, and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus, were to come to him with all speed. They departed. Amen. And that will get us started here for this evening. Like to basically entitle tonight's lesson this, In Search of the Unknown. In Search of the Unknown. Father, I come to you tonight. Lord, we're so grateful for gathering together in this house. God, we come, Lord, to this Wednesday night Bible study. Lord, allowing your word, Lord Jesus, to be the center of our lives. God, for the next little while. God, we're searching the scriptures, oh Lord Jesus, tonight. God, for we know, Lord God, they contain the words of life. Lord, and they are words, God, that also speak of you. I pray, oh Lord, anoint every mind, God. Help me, Lord Jesus, this evening, God, as I share, Lord, from this great holy book. God, a book that we live by, that we'll die by, and ultimately that we'll be judged by. In the lovely name of the Lord Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen and amen. Everyone say amen. Shake somebody's hand before you're seated tonight. In Jesus' name. We'll get to the whole Mars Hill scenario in chapter 17 here just a little bit later. But before we get to that, I think it's important just to look at a few things in the city of Berea that Paul and Silas has went to now. If you'll remember, I know this has kind of been disjointed with interruptions along the way, this chapter. But there were three cities that Paul would visit in this chapter. He'd visit Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. Is already, we are already studied him visiting Thessalonica and uh, what they were met with there and the opposition and uh, men of baser sort that they would gather together against Paul and Silas. And that is part and parcel why they are leaving and going from there. I think it is about 45 miles now unto uh, Berea. And they were sent away from Thessalonica by people that they were close to and had confidence in. And it was nothing but for their protection that that was done. Because, again, those of Thessalonica, the Thessalonians, some of them had malicious intent on their mind concerning Paul and Silas. And so I ask you a question that if you've not learned anything else, you probably learned this. Whenever Paul goes to Berea, typically what is probably the first place he's going to go to in that city? Anybody know? The synagogue. He's going to go to the synagogue. And that's exactly what he did. That would be his first stop in Berea, going to the synagogue. But the Bible makes a comparison of the people of Berea compared to those of Thessalonica. It tells us that the Berean people were more noble. That's not good English, but that's the way that the Bible says it. Amen. They were more noble or nobler than those in Thessalonica. Now, this is interesting to me, but the words that are in our English translation, more noble, have been translated from a Greek word, Eugenes. I'm just saying it the way that it looks like in English to me. Eugenes, which literally means that it means this, a well family or a well race. 
or meaning that this denoted someone that was high or of a noble birth. It was a well-bred person, a person that had uh, seemingly clout among society. However, Eugenes is the source. That Greek word is the source of our English word, eugenics, which is the study of methods of improving the quality of the human race, especially selective breeding. And when we read the scripture, there were mainly two items that led to this nobility that is being spoken of here in the scripture found in verse number 11. It says that these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily. In other words, those of Berea were open to or had a predisposition toward the word of God or toward truth. And secondly, they investigated, they examined, they searched the scriptures daily and measured what they found in the word of God against what the apostle Paul had said to just verify that he was speaking truth. And so what I learned from this is that they were more noble or nobler men than those of Thessalonica because of these two aspects. If I could say it in these terms, since that relates to somebody that is noble of a, of a well birth or a high birth, you increase your birth status when you readily receive the word of God. I like that. You increase your birth status whenever you readily receive the word of God. Not only that, I believe that the quality of the human race if I could be so broad with it, is benefited whenever we search out the word of God. Amen. These, these, I, I, Paul told Timothy that what was written herein that we call the word of God, this was more than some cunningly devised fable, Paul told Timothy. These were words to live by, words to be instructed by. According to the word of God, it's the word which we grow by. And I can testify here this evening that having received this word of God and having studied this word of God absolutely has increased my birth status. I was born once, but I was born again. And that was only because of the ingestion of the word of God. Not only that, it does benefit the human race. It only takes a, a small perusal through the book of Proverbs and applying the wisdom of Proverbs, that it would automatically help society overall. By an examination or a searching, a studying, if you will, of the word of God. As a matter of fact, many, many things that uh, uh, companies, leadership, business people all over, that they even uh, posture many of their, their, their diagrams and their structure of life and business on today can be found. First and foremost, in the word of God, in the word of God. And so the Bereans were very faithful students to the word of God. Uh, some people uh, have taken that term Berean so much so that they've even involved it in the title of their church. They're the, the first church of the Bereans and so on and so forth because they would study and examine the word of God. And it's important because they weren't just hearers of the word. All right. They weren't just hearers of the word or readers of the word, but they searched the scriptures. They, they wrestled with the scriptures. They, 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 they asked questions of the scriptures. They examined them. Uh, whenever we talk about the word searched here in the New Testament, it, it's the very same word that would be used for uh, whenever a man would go uh, delving and seeking or looking for gold or a man that was on a hunt and he was after some game. It's that same type of searching, that same type of application. Jesus said in John 5 and verse 39, he said, search. So this is something the Lord asked of us. He said, search the scriptures. He said, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify, he says, of me. Now look at verse 46 of that same chapter. He says, for had ye believed Moses, and when he states Moses, he's speaking of the scriptures of the Old Testament. He's speaking of those first five books in particular, the Old Testament. Uh, when we read the New Testament, the New Testament scriptures weren't written at that time. So all they had was the Old Testament scriptures. He said, had you believed Moses, 
In other words, had you believed the scriptures of, of that Old Testament, he said, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Can someone say amen? And what's interesting in that is when we come to verse 12 of chapter 17 of Acts that I read in your hearing tonight, when we come to verse 12, it starts with that word, therefore, or as a result of, or based upon this. So we have Bereans. They are searching the scriptures. They are readily receiving the word. And therefore, as a result of that, the Bible says, look what it says, many of them believed. That was a result of their Berean attitude. That was the result of readily receiving scriptures and searching out the scriptures. They believed. I, I boil it down in this one little sentence. An examination of the word of God will reveal the God of the word to you. Amen. Belief in the word of God opens a person to belief in God. Amen. And here is what we're dealing with today, at least in my opinion. People are, are, are holding up and wielding around flimsy beliefs in God. Flimsy beliefs in God and part and parcel, the reason why I think that is, is because they don't know anything about God. They know what others have told them per se about God. They know what the societal norms are concerning God. But nobody has acquainted themselves with God through his word. If you, you want to know about God, read God's book. And, and so there's flimsy beliefs today because they don't know anything about God. And so with that being said, it's easy to forfeit it's easy to forfeit a belief in God. A belief of God is easily shaken if you've never searched out the Word of God. Let me go a step further. It's hazardous. It's hazardous to attempt a relationship with God detached from His Word. It's hazardous to do that because you will have... A God that per se you believe in, but you know nothing about him. Would you, you can very quickly diffuse an accusation against somebody you know if you absolutely know them. Right? You're like, I know that ain't true. Why? Because you know them. But you could second guess a matter if you don't have no true intimate knowledge of them and just know of them. There's nothing sure, there's nothing firm, there's nothing resolute. And so we want the word of God. We want to be Berean in our approach to God's word. We, we want to search it out. We want to readily accept it. And hopefully that will bolster, if you will, our belief in God and in God's word. And according to Acts 17, this searching of the scriptures, what does it say? It was daily. Daily they searched the scriptures. They needed, as the Lord's Prayer demonstrates, that if you ever quote, they needed the daily bread. They needed the daily bread. Uh, that we see even paralleled in the Old Testament that whenever uh, God gave to the children of Israel each day, manna fell every morning, right? He was supplying a very literal means that could also parallel something very spiritual in the New Testament. He was supplying daily bread. And what happened to manna? Manna, manna that's not devoured today cannot be devoured tomorrow. Because it's going to be spoiled. It's going to be ate, it's going to be have worms in it. It's going to be spoiled. And so a person could not survive off yesterday's manna. Amen. The Bereans adopted that in their own spiritual eyes that they searched the scriptures daily. That what they devoured yesterday wasn't going to help them per se for today. They needed a new fresh look. They needed some fresh word for today. Now. Here's the thing, and this baffles me just to a small extent, but people will more eagerly search the Internet to find out what others have to say about the Bible rather than search the Bible to see what it says about itself and how the Bible interprets. It's a very good interpreter of itself. Amen. And besides that, think, we're, it's culture shock here, okay? The way they search scriptures is far different than the way that we search scriptures today. 
They didn't have an iPhone, iPad, or some electronic device. They didn't punch in a word and it brought all the scriptures up that had that word contained in it. They didn't have cross-reference books that could group certain scriptures together that had similarities to them. No, no, that wasn't it. Matter of fact, for them to have a literal copy of the scripture was a rarity, but evidently they did. And it was one long scroll, listen to me, and there wasn't chapter and verse divisions. Can you picture it? For them to really search the scriptures, Brother Mason, having that scroll just laid out, and they're just, you know, they're having their finger or, or a pointing stick, I guess if it was a Jew, because it was so holy they didn't want to touch it. You're going through searching the scriptures. No chapter or verse divisions. In other words, if Paul was standing up there preaching about a resurrection, about a Messiah, they're back here in Isaiah. Say, well, which book is that in? Isaiah. Well, can't you just kind of whittle it down for me, you know, so I don't have to look at the whole book? Uh, we've lost something to a certain degree by chapter and verse division. Well, you tell me where that's at. Well, that's such and such book, such and such chapter, such and such verse. They go, they read it. A lot of times don't even read the context around it. I would dare to say we would be a whole, about, whole lot knowledgeable concerning God's word if there weren't chapter and verse divisions still yet today because people would have to look at the whole, whole book of Isaiah. The Bereans. Maybe we can get you some Bibles published that don't have any chapter and verse divisions for your reading through the Bible program next year. <laughs> Amen. And so there is a literal searching of the scriptures. So, so let me go on. I got to hurry. Amen. So upon, upon hearing that Paul and Silas had made it to Berea, upon hearing that the word, he even particularly says that upon hearing that the word was preached there, this troubles the Thessalonians that he had left. And so they show up at Berea. This is common. We've already seen this happen before in the book of Acts. They show up at Berea. They start to stir up the brethren. This has already happened. Back in Acts 14, people came from, uh, they came from Iconium and Antioch came to Lystra. And they stirred up the people. The people there thought that Paul and Silas and them were gods. And before it was over, they were stoning Paul. Remember? Amen. So here it is again. People from another city going to Berea. Amen. Because the word is being preached. And they are trying to stir something up. So here again, once again, Paul has to leave this place. And he's sent to Athens alone. Silas and Timothy are going to stay right there. And Paul's going to send word to them to come to him as ASAP. All right, there it is. ASAP, as soon as possible. And so that brings us to verse number verse number 16 tonight. If I can start reading at verse number 16, page flipped on me. Amen. The Bible states these words. Just let me read to verse 21, if you will. Now, while Paul waited for them, he's waiting for Silas, he's waiting for Timothy at Athens. His spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews. Here he is at a synagogue again. And with the devout persons in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics entered, encountered rather him. And some said, what will this babbler say? And some he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preacheth, he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, that these, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So Paul is in Athens. He's by himself. Oh, Lord, what can an apostolic preacher do when he's all alone? He's by himself in a very great, tremendous city. This city of Athens, it's a center of culture. It's a center of education. It was on the decline at this time in history, but it was still quite something marvelous. It maintained a very famous university that was in the city. The, the city of Athens had numerous upon numerous beautiful buildings. There are some still yet there today, like the Parthenon and other things along those lines that been great architectural structures in this place. And so you think there's much that Paul could just be ooed and awed by as he walked among the roads of 
of Athens. Yet as he walks among the roads of Athens, he is not amazed by the university. He is not amazed by the architecture that's still yet in existence somewhat today in those cities. Not Paul. While he was waiting and walked among the corridors of the city of Athens, he was moved and served in his spirit about a city so much so given to idolatry. Now there's a spiritual man. I'm serious. There's a spiritual man. Me, I'd have my hat on. Man, have my backpack, get filled with water. Oh, going to see the sights. Look at the Parthenon. Look at the columns. Da, 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 da. And, you know, getting little brochures. And, no, no, no. Paul was such a spiritual man. He wasn't taken in by this grandiose environment that he was in. He was taken in his spirit by the fact that they were an adulterous people. That it didn't matter how smart they were. It didn't matter how grandeur their, their edifices was. It didn't matter how much money or culturally savvy they may have been. What struck him more than anything, this is a city that's without the God. And I say that to say this, if we don't watch it, we will be contrast to Paul. We'll live in our world and we'll be taken in by all of everything that our society in America has to offer because we're the greatest nation in the world that we tout. And we have the money and we have all the, the cutting edge things of technology and there's all this entertainment and everything that we can just give ourselves to. But if we don't watch it, we can walk through the world not being much different from the world and miss the fact that there is idolatry all through this land. And there's people here that need the God. Athens, just how bad it was in Athens. Athens was referred to as the God capital of the world. It is estimated that there were about 30,000 idols in the city of Athens. And only about 10,000 people there during the time when Paul visited so much so that one person said it was easier to find a God than it was a man in Athens. Some others wrote, said that the Greek religion there in Athens was a mere deification of human attributes and the power of nature. It was a religion which ministered to art and to amusement. But Paul, Paul was moved by the scene of idolatry in the city of Athens. So much so that he disputed with the Jews in their synagogue. And whenever the synagogue wasn't open, he was in the marketplace daily speaking to people concerning about the condition of the city and the land in which they were living. And why is Paul doing this? I'll tell you why. Paul had a knowledge. Paul had a knowledge. Paul knew that idolatry was demonic. It was demonic. He tells us of this knowledge in 1 Corinthians 10. In 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 14, Paul relates to us this knowledge that he has. He says, wherefore, my dearly beloved, he says, flee from idolatry. That means to run away. That means to shun. He says, I speak as to wise men, judge ye what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless. He's talking about communion here. He says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, being many, are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Behold, Israel after the flesh are not they which eat of the sacrifices, partakers of the altar. Verse 19, what say I then? He's questioning these things, rhetorical, having them to think that the idol is anything or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything. But I say that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. What Paul is saying, he says, whenever they sacrifice their sacrifices to these idols of wood and stone and, and silver and gold, when they do that, they are sacrificing to devils. That idol is not anything, but it represents something. I've told you before, their idols many times had holes in the back of them, but they believed that these spirits would come in and invade whenever they were bowing prostrate before them and making their sacrifices to these idols. Paul says when the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils. And note what he says. He said, I would to God that you would not be fellowshipping. That you would not be fellowshipping with 
devils. Because he's talking about communion, taking of the body and the blood. You've heard me teach this a thousand times. But whenever you take of the body and you take of the blood, you take of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you are communing with the one to whom the sacrifice is for. And so when we take of the body and the blood of Christ, we are communing with God for whom the sacrifice was meant for. Yet whenever you take of a sacrifice that is to an idol, you are communing, you are communing with the spirit. You're communing with the little G-O-D, amen, to whom the sacrifice was meant for. Someone say amen. And you do that, you have fellowship with devils. And Paul says without doubt in verse 21, ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. And so Paul knew something right away. If there's idolatry in this city, there is no God worship in the city because you can't do both. You can't do both. Both. And perhaps that's what shook Paul, shook Paul more than anything. There's idolatry all around here. So there is an absence of God in this city because people are giving themselves to idol things. They have allowed those things to become between them and God. I'm telling you flat-footed tonight. If you have any means of idolatry in your life, you cannot do that and do the God thing at the same time. And I'm not talking about having some picture on the wall you bow down to or something in the corner that's the image you bow down to. But as I said before, anything that becomes that becomes between you and God has become your idol. It comes what you worship, what you sacrifice to, what you give your time to, what you honor. That cannot coexist with your God. Cannot. David even understood this in the Old Testament, Psalm 69, 22. He says, let their table become a snare before them. That which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. Because David understood the food on the table comes from what is sacrificed on the altar. And if it's sacrificed unto idle things, then the food on the table is a snare to them because they're in fellowship with devils. It should be for their sustenance, but it's a snare and it's a trap to them because they're having fellowship with devils. Because by and large, you can study throughout uh, the book of Leviticus and the book of Deuteronomy, very seldom the people in those times have meat. Most of the time, any time they had meat, it's because they made a sacrifice to God, a peace offering that they were allowed to partake of. Very seldom, if they were to sacrifice a sacrifice away from the temple, they had to make sure without doubt that it was totally drained of blood because if it had not been totally drained of blood, they were cut off from their people according to the law. So nobody was quite so uh, confident in the way that they sacrificed that usually, mostly, they would always take their sacrifice to the temple for it to be sacrificed to ensure the priests made sure that it was drained of blood. And the only thing that could be brought to God was the things that God said he would allow. Yeah, it was certain animals that only he would allow. And so their diet was dictated by God's diet. Their, their diet was dictated by God's diet. In other words, it wasn't going to go in their mouth if it wasn't acceptable to God. And so that's how David says, let their table become a snare to them. Because if this isn't unto God, if this isn't unto the Lord, he said, then it is something that's fellowshipping with devils. And it's an ensnarement, and entrapment for their soul. So, Paul, you understand. You understand Paul and his uneasiness concerning the city of Athens. And he's not long there till some smarty pants showed up. Some intellectuals, the Bible calls them philosophers, showed up. Which Athens and Greece very well known for in their history. We have the Plato and the Socrates. And these ones that we hear about and little quips on. Aristotle, all these people finding their, their place in their fountainhead in Athens and in Greek philosophy, so on and so forth. But there were two groups of philosophers 
that came and met Paul. And some of the stuff I say tonight will probably carry on until next week and we'll pull it all together. Okay. But nevertheless, these two groups of philosophers that met, one was the Epicureans, the other was the Stoics. Now, I'm just going to, this is just pure information, education. But it sheds light on the latter portion, portion of Acts 17 here in a little bit that we probably won't get to tonight. <laughs> the Epicureans were materialist. They believed that the sum total of life was what was being lived right now in their moment prior to death. They did not believe in an afterlife. Death was the finality. There was not anything beyond the grave. They believed, the Epicureans believed, that everything happened by chance. They're going to have a problem with the God that Paul's going to declare unto them if they believe everything happened by chance. I mean, they, they are the ones, you know, some amoeba just climbed up on land and evolved into a, you know what I'm saying? They believed everything just kind of happened by chance. Materials in the galaxies just collided and, whoo, there's an earth. They, they had a lean toward, toward atheism, as a matter of fact. Their goal in life, their goal in life was pleasure. Pleasure. Living in the moment, living in this life, pleasure. And if at all possible, minimizing them at most any pain that they might feel or sense. So pleasure, no pain. They didn't believe in, per se, a, a supernatural being that needed to be feared or a supernatural being that needed to be obeyed. They theorized that if there was such a supernatural being, if such a one existed, that supernatural being was probably so far from them that he wouldn't interfere with the lives of men. I so bad want to jump forward and start telling you about, and, I, and let me just put it there for next week's setups, start telling you about when Paul starts talking to them, say, seek after the Lord, if happily you might find him. For he's not far. Oh, God. See, this is a people here that I'm speaking about. This second group of people were Stoics. They were self-sufficient. <laughs> self-sufficient. They believed God was in everything. God's in that pew. God's in that carpet. God's in that wall. God's in the dirt. God's, God's in everything. They, they, were, they, were, they were what we would call pantheists, that all things are God. All right? Their goal was if by their own personal discipline, they could bring themselves in harmony with the course of the universe and thus bring themselves in harmony with God. They're hugging a tree somewhere. I'm just, it's, it's the new age movement of today is what the Stoics were then. And so when Paul was speaking in the marketplace in the synagogues and he's talking about Jesus and he's talking about the resurrection they deemed these two. They deemed them as two. They didn't deem it as Jesus and something that Jesus had done, a resurrection. They looked at it as Jesus and another God, the resurrection. And so this was puzzling to them. Said so these are strange gods to us. They never heard of Jesus. They never heard of the resurrection. Let's consider for the moment. These are philosophers. These are very intelligent individuals. But they've never heard of Jesus. These are people that are merged in a city that has a very famous, famous university, but they know nothing about the resurrection. Let's just behoove all of ourselves here for a moment. There are classes of those type of people that's walking in shoe leather today. I know you don't believe it because we live in this fear, but there is still a grand amount of people that know nothing about Jesus and know nothing about his resurrection and know nothing about a need for him. And it's evident they've never heard of them because they have all these multiplicity of gods in their city. For that matter, it, only, it almost serves the reason that they never found any satisfaction in any of these 30 plus, 30,000 plus gods. Somehow the void never got filled in their life, though they had these 30 plus thousand gods. What this proves to me, folks, is this. You can be on an endless journey until you come to know the God and completely surrender to the God. 
Because one won't, one, one won't do, two won't do. This won't do, that won't do, nothing will do. You'll constantly be on that search. You'll always want to be here of a new thing as they were. Another new message, some new slant, some new slide. Because none of those previously will have caused any satisfaction in the longing that's truly in their life. Uh, the preacher Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes, he said, in men, he said, I have put eternity in their heart. God has put something within the heart of men that there is a journey, there is a longing, there is a desiring. And he oftentimes tries to satisfy that with things that are that 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 are impossible to satisfy it, that that come low and below and are deficient in satisfying it, because there's only one thing that can really satisfy the eternity that God has placed within the heart of man, and that's the God that placed it there. Hallelujah. But the pitfall of the Athenians then was this. They spent their time telling or hearing some new, quote, unquote. See the quotations there? New thing. Ecclesiastes 1 and 8, the preacher says this. He said, all things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. The thing that hath been... It is that which shall be. That which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. Let's pull verse 9 down in a simple phrase we all can understand. History repeats itself. Is there anything whereof it may be said? See, this is new. Verse 10. It hath, all, it hath been already of old time which was before us. Something that we are as human beings trapped by is noted right here in Ecclesiastes. It's one law, two laws, really. One law is this, the law of unfulfilled expectation. Unfulfilled expectation. That, 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 that person that, that goes and runs in Olympics and he runs and he gets that gold medal. He thought that was going to be the creme de creme. He gets it, though. And it's not, it's not quite what it all cracked up to be. He's going to go back in four years and compete again because he's got to have two. And then there's the other law, the law of diminishing returns. It's what you find in addicts, the need for more to get the same result. You find it in life. What's he saying? He said, the labor of man will not utter. He said, the C and I, it's not satisfied. Huh? Huh? Just got to keep on, keep on, keep on. And all these things that are promised us to life, they seem not to deliver. And God stationed all that with purpose. Because he wants us to fight in those dead ends. He wants us to come to those places where it doesn't have the same return that it did. He wants us to come with unfilled expectations with everything we involve in. Why? Hopefully that that's going to be just things that's going to help direct us and point us to where it needs to be in him. Because if we'll search any, everything in this known world and be unsatisfied and don't have hope, maybe we'll direct our attention toward him and whenever you taste and see that he is good and there comes that satisfaction you ever had and that peace you never had and that joy you never had and all those other things come flood in your life it's like what have i been doing along this journey trying to pour wealth into bags that have holes What have i been doing because he says in verse 9 there is nothing new under the sun but Brother McGee, there's always something new. Yeah, I agree. There, there's inventions that's coming on and technological advancements that take place. But all of that is nothing more but just, but just innovations. Innovations of what, what is here. But the problem is this. We always had the same problem. And we're trying to find contentment with things that are temporal, that cannot give us the contentment that we need. And when the next new thing blazes by, someone's ready to saddle that and ride it for a while, thinking they'll find what they need from it. Some people, they'll, they'll jump from organization, church to church constantly, even denominations constantly. Because when a newfangled idea comes up concerning the Bible or God, you'll see all kinds of people flock to that. I'm serious. All the, they'll jump on that. Yeah, this is where it's at, blah, blah, blah. And for number one, they're, they're taking some, somebody's idea about God and they're not looking at God's own idea of himself. Like OTF Tenney repetitively likes to say, he says, it's just an old hag in a new dress. 
meaning there's nothing new. You just dress it up differently. Amen. I, I've talked to elders of years gone by. You have two bishop, old preachers saying, talking about some of this stuff that's coming today, the emergent church, all this other technology. They said we had that same thing X number of generations ago. They just kind of changed the facade a little bit, changed the label on it. It's the exact same thing. Someone say amen. And so the Athenians, they, they were just addicted to every little new thing that came across the scene. And here was their problem. They spent all their time telling about it or hearing about it. They, locked, they liked to talk about them. They were big, big on talking about all these things. But what they lacked was the doing. And this would even be part of their problem for some of them whenever they heard the, the message of the Apostle Paul. They would probably like to go on and tell it and talk about it some more. But some of them were, were, were remiss in that they did not do anything about it. Ray Pritchard said it like this. He said, it's, it's possible to be highly educated and deeply religious and still be totally ignorant about God. With that being said, in the next chapter, Acts chapter 18, Paul's going to go to Corinth. And later, in 1 and 2 Corinthians, in the books of Corinthians, the letters that he wrote to the church at Corinth, this is something that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.21. He said, the world by wisdom, speaking of the wisdom of men, he said, the world by wisdom did not know God. I believe Paul was thinking back upon the Athenians that he had been exposed to. Philosophers, smart, educated, genius type of people. But he says, the world by wisdom, the wisdom of men, did not know God. But he continues to say, but it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching. To save them that believe. Let me tell you what education, what intelligence, what smarts, what IQ cannot do. God's word when preached even through a country preacher can do. Because this is a living word. These are the word God inspired words of God. Honey, if this can't bring it to life, nothing can bring it to life. If this can't bring enlightenment, nothing can bring enlightenment. Someone say amen. So look at verse 22, and I'll close with these two verses, 22 and 23, but I'm not done. Okay. Acts 17 and verse 22, in case there was a false start or anything. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For I passed by and beheld your devotions. I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. So Paul's in Mars Hill now. Uh, it tells us in the scriptures they took him to Areopagus, which is just the Greek form, amen, of Mars Hill. He has called the audience together here, and he told them, you all are too superstitious. Now, you want to talk about somebody smart, the Apostle Paul, because whenever he used the word superstitious, that's in our English language. But the Greek word that he, he gave there can mean two things. It's ambiguous. It can mean they were either too superstitious or it could mean that they were very religious. Now, here is a savvy guy. Because you don't want to get off the wrong foot with a bunch of people in idolatry. That you want them to hear what you got to say. So he uses that Greek word. They might interpret it as, yes, we're very religious. But he could have meant it that you were really too superstitious. Smart guy. Uses ambiguity in his favor. Amen. And so he, he's, he's intelligent here in doing this. And so with this being said, though, there's something about humanity. doesn't matter if it's here in America or in some third world country. Uh, according to anthropologists and sociologists, they say that every culture in the world is religious to some degree. Every culture in the world is religious. There is some concept in all the different religions of the world. There is some concept of a higher power in their religious hierarchy, in their religious beliefs. There, there is some that, uh, some of them term it as the vague one, the beyond the mountain, the most high God. They, they don't really have their hand on it, but they believe in some stupendous almighty power, you know, that's out there in their, in their beliefs. And so here is something interesting then with these people of the Athenians. These are intellectuals, right? They're philosophers. They're smart people. But according to what they labeled one of their altars, they showed a little faux pas in their intellect.
they labeled one of their altars to the unknown God. <laughs> In other words, they were admitting that there was a God that they did not know. And Paul says, I can work with a people that can come to a place and admit there's a God that they don't know. That's a good starting place for me. <laughs> That's a good starting place for me. So Paul started talking to them about the God they did not know. Now here it is. If you don't know him, Paul basically tells it. If you don't know him, you ignorantly worship him. It's kind of like whenever Jesus had the meeting with the woman of Samaria, the Samaritan woman. She says, our fathers worship in this mount. Remember the dialogue that's between them? And Jesus tells her, you worship, you know not what Worshiping what you don't know is dangerous work. Worshiping ignorantly, worshiping a God per se, you don't know is dangerous worship. Because our worship should be tied to knowing who and what. Yes, we worship. The Bible says in Matthew 4 and 10, Jesus is in the wilderness. The temptation comes from the adversary. He retorts him on one occasion with the word of God on all three occasions. But this particular occasion, Matthew 4, 10. Then said Jesus unto him, get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Dangerous to worship what you don't know because you will serve whatever you worship. Ignorant worship is stupid because scriptural basis, you'll end up serving what you worship. It's worship. To, it's dangerous to worship an entity you do not know because eventually you're going to serve it. If you don't know the integrity of the being you're worshiping, if you don't know what type of master that is, you don't know what type of Lord that is, then you shouldn't confidently be bowing yourself. Figuratively, literally, you should not confidently be bowing yourself to it. Because what you're bowing to today, you'll be obeying tomorrow. <laughs> See, worshiping the unknown ensnared a people here in the book of Acts. It ensnared them to living in bondage to a master. They only come to know after they surrendered their lives in many respects. And even in our own lives. If you are trying to worship a God that you do not know. Many people find themselves in scenarios that they wish they could get themselves out of. Because in reality, they had no idea what they were starting when they began. Hmm? There's husbands and wives. There's people sitting strapped today in corners, bound by drugs. Yeah, they worshipped what they did not know. Only to find themselves, time later, they are serving that thing and in bondage to it. It's not a good master, not a good Lord. Well, there is a good case. It's bad to worship something you don't know. It's bad to worship something you don't know. If you don't know the integrity, you don't know. It's bad to worship something you don't know. And so many are bound to masters. They only thought they knew, but they really didn't. What they did was doing ignorant worship. And so Paul, though, declares God unto them. Undoubtedly, the purpose, the reason why they had an altar. To, and it wasn't just a altar from my reading of history. It was altars. They had altars in the city of Athens to unknown, the unknown God. 
I guess what happened centuries before all this with the Apostle Paul, here's a little tidbit for you, that there was a plague that broke out in the city of Athens. And there was a man or leader among them said that we need to release both black and white sheep among the city. And wherever the city stopped that we were sacrificed, then that sheep, that lamb on the altar that is near to. Well, if the lamb stopped not near an altar, they would then build an altar at that place where the lamb stopped to an unknown God. Just by chance, you know, they're afraid here. We don't want anybody to get missed. So this is really what their testament was, but Paul was using it for his, his, his betterment. He says, so since you all are so smart and so intelligent, but you have made, you have made, you have admitted here that there is an unknown God, amen. He says, I'm going to declare to you the, the God. And for the next nine or so verses, from verse 23 on, for the next nine or so verses, Paul begins to introduce them to the God. He tells them about, and I'll talk about this next week, but he talks about the nature of God, the habitation of God, the dominion of God, the created work of God, the accessibility of God, how God wants men to repent, how the world will be judged by God. He talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is Paul doing? He's informing them about God because he knows they can't truly worship. Unless they know him. He says, so I'm going to remove all the barriers. I'm going to educate them about God. For that matter, he does a little bit for them what the Bereans did for themselves. He starts examining. This is about God. That's about God. He talks to them about God being the creator, God being the Lord, how in him we live and move and have our being. As one of your own prophets even has said, man, Paul lays it all down trying to explain to them the God that they did not, sincerely did not know. He says, I'll declare him unto you. If you'll stand with me here this evening, I'll declare him unto you. And so there is people in search of the unknown. The Bereans, and they're searching, they're perusing, they're opening their heart readily to the scriptures, searching of the unknown. And now these philosophers, these people, these Athenians, and Athens are really, really on a pursuit for searching for the unknown, that which is still unknown in their life. Paul is going to declare it. And some are going to take that understanding and they're going to begin to worship and they're going to be able to serve a God now that they have knowledge of. And ignorant worship is going to be turned into profitable worship. Amen. And they're going to tie themselves to something that's greater than what they've ever been exposed to the length of their lives because they're going to tether themselves to the God of the universe. We're going to just bow our heads in this place here this evening. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.